Well, good morning. If you would uh, get your Bibles, we're going to dive right on in here. Uh, if you turn to Acts chapter 21, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. Pull out your Bible, get your Bible app. Um, we're going to be looking at Acts 21. And so while, while you're working and turning there, we'll just kind of get a recap of what we've been doing for the last few months, because over the last couple of months now, we've been studying and walking through the book of Acts. We've seen Jesus ascend into heaven, disciples clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit, lives changed by the gospel, people becoming followers of Jesus. In the previous 20 chapters, the Holy Spirit has done amazing things in the lives of people. Signs, wonders, miracles, multiplying the church by thousands at one time in some cases. People's lives are being changed and transformed. We see that. That's the heart of Acts, the heart of the Holy Spirit moving in our lives. And one person uh, specifically that we're going to talk about today that's gone through quite a dramatic uh, transformation is Paul. Now, throughout uh, this last part of Acts, the, kind of this, the last 10, 12 chapters we've been looking at, Luke has been tracking and reporting about Paul's life and the incredible transformation that he's gone through. He, take, he talks about a guy who's gone from being a persecutor and murderer of Christians, stoning them, supporting that, advocating for that, to now he is not only a devoted follower of Jesus, but he's a leader in the church. He's dedicated his life to spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, traveling all over, planting churches, raising leaders, equipping leaders, and multiplying believers by the thousands. Paul himself has gone through something incredible that can only be a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, the power of God moving in a miraculous way. And then we come now to today, where we, our Bibles are open to uh, this story here in chapter 21. And it begins with Paul and the leaders that are with him and others that have been traveling with him and, and indicated here, including Luke, the writer of Acts. And they're in the midst of this travel of going around and and preaching and evangelizing and planting churches, healing people, uh, even raising people back from the dead, all sorts of incredible things. And now they come to a man named Philip, uh, his home, an evangelist in Caesarea. And they're gathered here uh, in this house, and then a man comes in named Agabus who brings a prophecy. A prophecy that, um, as, as we'll read, is not the most delightful or inspiring of words, is not a, a word of encouragement and excitement, uh, but of persecution and suffering that awaits Paul at his next stop in Jerusalem. And so what we see is looking at other parts of Scripture is that what Paul's getting here and what they're going to start walking through and what they've experienced, this suffering for the sake of Jesus isn't anything new. It's nothing new for Christians. It's nothing new for those who have been followers and God's chosen people throughout the course of history. We see even in John 16 that uh, Jesus says of how in him there is peace, but in the world there's tribulation. He again says in the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. In John 15, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. And if, they've, and if God, Jesus, he says, if I've chosen you out of this world, the world's going to hate you. They're going to hate you. There's instances that Jesus and Peter and Paul talk about. Going back to the Old Testament, we see the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt in Exodus. We see the pains of Job. 
in his book of wisdom, we see Jonah, the prophet who is struggling with so many things and sitting in the depth, literally in the depths in the belly of a fish, pain and suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, whether our own doing or not, is part of the call of being a Christian. It's part of the territory, but it's also part of the growth and the expansion and the proclamation of the gospel. It's part of the movement of God in this world. So with these encouraging and wonderful words and terms, what do we do with that? What does that mean uh, for us? And that's what we get to chapter 21. And we're going to see two different responses here in chapter 21 to the suffering that has been explained and been walked through throughout all of Scripture. So if you look with me uh, at, at verse 12, we see that the first reaction here uh, is going to be avoidance and self-preservation. The first reaction we get to suffering is to avoid and to self-preserve. And that's the response of the friends gathered with Paul, who have walked with him, who have been part of these journeys, and they've probably experienced some of the pain he's already gone through. We see that uh, his response is, is one of... Um, that these guys are just kind of hesitant to this, that Agabus comes in, lays out this prophecy in verse 12 uh, that they say, uh, when we heard this, the writer of the book and others gathered with them in Philip's house, uh, that we, the people, urge him not to go to Jerusalem. We urge him not to. And like we said, this isn't new news. To help us get why they're urging that, we need to look back one chapter. So we're going to jump back just for a second to have a little movie flashback to chapter 20. Uh, we're in chapter 20. Uh, Paul is meeting with elders in Ephesus. So you see he's meeting with a lot of leaders in these cases, and he tells them of the suffering she's already endured. He lays this out for them there and says, look, this is what we've gone through. And in verse uh, 20 of chapter 20, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. So they've, as they receive this, this message from Agabus, his friends, Paul has already told them that the Holy Spirit's placed in his heart, that he's about to experience something bad. So now Agabus comes in, and that's just re-emphasized and re-verified by the Spirit. And their response is, whoa, 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 whoa. Paul, don't go. We've heard you talk about this before. We've already been on the receiving end of some of this with you. Don't do this. Their desire for Paul is to avoid this suffering, to self-preserve. Isn't that the way a lot of times we feel about these situations? That our inclination is to stay out of harm's way? To not place ourselves in an area or in a situation where we know danger is lurking around the corner. It's why we don't play in traffic. <laughs> you know, it's why we don't go walking on broken glass unless you're some sort of magician and you just are able to do that. And it's, it's, we, I don't understand these things because I still don't want to know the trick because I'm not going to do it anyways. I'm not going to cause myself harm, deliberate harm. We protect ourselves physically. We protect ourselves emotionally. 
There's so many times that I like, especially growing up, that I didn't want to place myself in a position to where I could feel pain. That I knew that I was going to be placing myself in a vulnerable state that, that the pain and suffering was going to be invited in. And as I entered into situations that were, may happen, I oftentimes wanted to pull myself away. How can I protect my heart from experiencing that? Why would I want to go through that? Why would I want to experience pain and loss? We want to be safe, right? We want to feel good. We don't want to be hurting. I think that's natural. We don't want to experience pain because, well, it's painful. It's as simple as that. My friend Fasaya and I, we were talking about this passage the other day, and I was like, you know, this is going to be such an uplifting message about suffering. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, and so we were just kind of talking about those things in this passage, and the, Paul's like, look, I'm going to go to a place where I already know, and now someone else has verified, like, it's going to be bad. And Fasaya kind of looks at me and says, you know, if someone told me that I was going to break my leg at youth group, helping out with the kids, I got to be honest with you, I'm probably not going. <laughs> I'll wait till that week passes and I'm going to be safe. And I was like, you know what, brother? <laughs> I would do the same thing. Because isn't that our inclination? To pull ourselves away from situations that we know are harmful? It seems natural and logical. Tim Keller, in one of his sermons about pain and suffering, he talks about the difference between uh, people today, the modern person, and then how people approached pain and suffering even a century ago. That a century ago, death was part of life, right? That even at times when uh, people had a large number of kids, that there were even mothers who would go into that situation expecting some of those children to die. That was just part of life, part of bad health care, part of disease and famine. The modern person today and the way we are with where we are in medicine and with our lives, we're a little bit different than that. And Keller highlights that where he says that for the for average person right now, their response usually is, this isn't right. Life isn't supposed to be this way. I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. It's not supposed to hurt like that. We now view suffering through a lens of what we feel the natural order of life should be, through a lens of our own understanding of rightness and righteousness. We see the pain in the present, and that's kind of all. That, that pain or the prospect of that keeps us there. And linking at those gathered with Paul, they plead with him not to go somewhere where he is going to be persecuted because they don't want to experience that pain too. Right? It's, all, it's not that they don't care about Paul, because they do. They love him. They travel with him. They would lay their life down for him. But it's also for themselves, too, because they're traveling with him in these things. This reminds me of a, a, a quote from Captain America's Civil War, <laughs> which is kind of my go-to illustration. It just happens to be Marvel movies so often where Captain America is talking to his buddy Falcon, and they're talking about going against something they find is injustice. They're going to butt up against something that's going to put them in harm's way for what they feel is right. And Falcon looks at Captain America, and he says, I want to make sure you're positive, because whoever's shooting at you usually winds up shooting at me too. 
Right? Isn't that like how we feel? As he loves his friend, best friend, Captain America, but at the same time, he's like, look, Cap, if we're going to go into battle, i got to make sure because I'm going to be on the receiving of this too. I want to make sure. So one way we react to suffering is through that avoidance, through that self-preservation, which is kind of our natural tendency. And that leads us to our second way to respond, and that is the way that Paul responds, and that's through hopeful and joyful endurance. That is so drastically different than our natural inclination. It's back in our Bibles, we're at verse 13. Paul's response to his friends in verse 12 is this. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul has experienced so much. He's been imprisoned. He's been stoned. And Lord knows what else he's gone through that's not even recorded. He says the Holy Spirit's revealed to him every place he goes, at least imprisonment is going to wait for him. So why is he willing to do this? Well, Paul is so captivated by Jesus Christ. He is so in love with Jesus Christ that there's nothing that will keep him from doing what God has called him to do. He finds joy, the joy of the Lord, in his sufferings. He is actually moved and touched by the grief and pain he experiences. It's not that Paul's a masochist. It's not that he delights in his pain or that he suffers for suffering's sake or that he enjoys feeling that pain and agony. He's also not a stoic in the sense that he doesn't rejoice even though he's like, oh yes, this is so great. I love having rocks thrown at my face. He doesn't do anything like that or say, hey, don't let it bother you. The pain you feel, don't let it get to you. You have to be bigger than the pain. Because that also misses what Scripture does tell us about pain and suffering. That pain is something that we are to experience, that we do experience, and that we do feel. I think the greatest example of that is Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He cries out in pain. He's whipped beyond recognition. He is hung on a cross to insult him as the lowest of the low. And he feels every ounce of it. Looking back in the Old Testament at Job, Job, had lost, his, his wife had died, his children had died. He'd been stripped of everything. He hits the ground, shaves his head, rips his clothes in his pain, cries out in agony, and the Bible tells us, yet Job sinned not. They didn't say, and Job felt nothing. It highlights his pain and says that he remained hopeful in something greater. Paul says, I'm not ready, ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die. That for Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ held the greatest value in his life. He was fully devoted, dedicated, and as a result, as a result of that, there's no amount of pain, there's no amount of suffering, there's no amount of torture, there's no amount of loss that he was not willing to endure for the sake and for the name of Jesus. In fact, in suffering, in suffering, there was joy and hope. Paul writes in Romans 5, we'll see here that he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we, re we rejoice in our sufferings. 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That he's able to do this because the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. And as a result, we are able to rejoice in suffering and hope in the things to come. Hope in the life and peace that only Jesus can give. This sounds great, right? Like to be hopeful, to be hopeful in pain and suffering. But sometimes as I honestly look at this stuff, I sit there and think, but what does this do if I'm in the middle of pain? What if I'm, what do I do? What does this really mean for me if I'm walking through something terrible? If I have endured it in the past, if I'm going to endure it in the future? What is the flesh on that bone? Because sometimes it can feel abstract. So let's take a deeper look into what, how, how that actually can play out in some ways. But as we get there, I want us to note that our response to suffering is key to our faith. Because in suffering... In pain and loss and in tragedy, the Holy Spirit shows us how much Jesus loves us and that he died for us. And suffer, it's during suffering that the sufferings of Christ can mean the most. That our pain, as big as it is, as terrible as it is, as much as it hurts, because I never want to say that it doesn't hurt, because it does. But that is so small in comparison to what Jesus endured for every single one of us, that he took on the worst of pain so that the pain we experience can be redeemed, that it frees us, his death, his pain frees us to hope and believe that what Jesus has done is going to restore that pain that we have experienced, and we can hold on to that. Suffering and pain and loss are all real. We feel it. We grieve it. But in those things, friends, we have something great, greater to hope for. That the worst things in this life do not end in loss here. I'll say that again. The worst things in life do not end in loss here. For there's redemption in Jesus Christ. There is new life and there is hope in him. And as Christians... And as followers of Jesus, y'all, we hope in the resurrection and we hope in God's ultimate restoration. We hope. This is what Jesus has graciously done and what he has undeservedly given to us. He gave up all of his glory. He stripped himself of all of that so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. He was captured and bound and beaten and killed so that we could be freed from sin and death so that we could be freed from the pain that we feel. He endured the ultimate suffering, being cast from the presence of God, took it all upon himself so that the suffering we face would not destroy us. He took it all on so that the suffering we face would not destroy us, but it would raise us to new life in Jesus Christ. Our suffering brings about the most beautiful transformation. Just like a diamond under great pressure. And so for that, that flesh on those bones, I want to leave us with this, this one last story that I pray helps us begin to kind of grasp what this can look like, what this can feel like, because it still can seem hard. How do I hope for that? How can I possibly do that? 
how can I possibly endure during these times that feels like the darkness is never going to end? So I want to tell you a story about, uh, about my little baby sister. So this, and I'm sorry. <clears throat> My sister Hannah was uh, diagnosed with cancer at 15 years old. Um, and one major thing to note about her and her life is that she was a dancer. She loved to dance. It was her greatest joy, and she was pretty stinking good, too. She was real good. But she was diagnosed with a bone cancer that um, started in her hip and traveled into her legs. And as a result of that, she underwent multiple, multiple surgeries on her, on her leg. And that surgery, uh, while it saved her leg, as a result, she was never able to walk again. She was never able to dance, which was her greatest joy. And so after her diagnosis, um, and after uh, about a little over a year of struggling with this, of fighting this, of going through multiple surgeries, going through multiple rounds of chemo, Hannah died at 16 years old. And throughout her sickness and journey, the amazing thing is that she remained focused on her faith in Jesus Christ. Her unwavering faith and devotion to Jesus inspired countless numbers of people. She even had a blog that she had online where she, she was writing and recording every step of the way from the first diagnosis she had all the way to they thought she was, they, they was going to be healed. They saved her leg. They found out the cancer was in her lungs. They've had surgeries on their lungs. They thought that they may have gotten rid of it. Then the cancer went to her brain. And after they did that, they said, you've got a few weeks to live, and that's it. And during her physical sickness, God moved in a miraculous way, drawing others closer to him and healing their spiritual sickness while Hannah's physical sickness worsened. It got worse and worse. Now, you would think that the knowledge and getting the news that you were going to die at the age of 16 would cripple you for life. That rest of the tenure that you had here on earth, you'd be done. You'd give in, you'd fold, or you'd go kind of YOLO ham on that and just go all out and just do whatever crazy thing you could think of. YOLO meaning you only live once. So I need to put things in context sometimes. <laughs> but that's not what Hannah did. She was not depressed. She was not demoralized. She wasn't immobilized. In fact, towards the end of her death, she was noted as saying this, if I don't die, I'll live in anticipation of heaven the rest of my life, which would be yucky. Having to wait. For my sister, who was going through all these pains and surgeries, lost the ability to do the greatest joy she had. Suffering and pain would have been to live, to not be with Jesus, to not be able to be in his presence. The thought of spending eternity with Jesus meant that much to her. It meant everything to where the loss of earthly life 
was joy. Because now she could run and dance and play with Jesus for all eternity. To be fully immersed in the presence of God was everything. The pains of death and loss here were so small because there was more to hope for forever. And what an incredible inspiration to hope for the future and for our lives that is. This is the joy that Paul talks about in his letters. This is the hope that Paul has latched onto that he follows even unto his own death. Because to this day, I stand amazed at my sister. And I look at her and say, I don't know that I would be able to do that. If I'm completely honest and transparent, can I look at my life and say that I could? And I don't know. I pray to God every single day that I could. And I hope that dedicating my life and doing everything that, Lord, I would be there, but I don't know because I haven't been there. Because when she got her diagnosis, what I did is I turned and I ran. I was Paul's friends, and I didn't just encourage someone else to run. I ran myself. I would have been the friend that was with Paul that would have turned around and left that house because that's what I did because I refused to face pain. I had no Hope. I believed in Jesus and I had not latched on to the hope that he had because I thought that Jesus was there to make my life taste real good. And I thought that's what grace was. Boy, did I miss the boat. Because grace is eternal. Grace isn't the taste of good things here. It's the taste of the life everlasting. And that's what my sister held on to. And fear never got in her way. She was never scared. I get scared talking about it here before you today, but she was not. My mom said, when asked if Hannah ever got afraid, my mom said this, that Hannah had no fear of death. At no time was she at the least bit frightened by the end of her earthly journey and the beginning of eternal life. Quite the contrary. She expressed unwavering certainty that she would soon be running and playing, most of all dancing. She looked beyond to see eternal life with Jesus. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to be hopeful in the midst of suffering. To hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the restoration of all things. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would move in each one of us today. I, my prayer is that, the, that God would take a latch and take a hold of our hearts in a way that, that we can position and posture ourselves in that same place as Hannah and the same place as Paul. That again we see that in suffering and in pain and in tragedy, the Holy Spirit will show us how much Jesus loves us and that he died for us and that we can hope in the life everlasting. I pray that the greatest pains and the deepest and darkest places that we'll find ourselves in that we'll find hope in Jesus Christ. That we'll find hope in the suffering that he took on our behalf on the cross and that we will be restored into our right relationship with him. Not just now, but for all eternity and for life everlasting. Would you please pray with me? God, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. 
And Lord, I pray that you take hold of our hearts. Lord, that the pain we feel, the pain that we experience, Lord, that we could see the hope in you in those situations, in grief and in loss. Lord, that your death and resurrection would come, resurrection would come alive in that. Lord, that although we sit here today and some of us may worry, Lord, what do we do? Lord, we don't have to worry about how we react, Lord. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work to earn your approval or earn the grace and earn your forgiveness, Lord. You have given that freely, and Lord, there's no greater hope that we have. Lord, take a hold of our heart. Take a hold of our lives. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, prepare us that in the darkest of days, Lord, as we sit here and if there's pain on the horizon, we can say, I'm not only willing to go into that, Lord, but I'm willing to die to give my life for you. And, Lord, it's only by the power of your Holy Spirit that you graciously give us that we could even begin to approach that posture. So, Lord, we pray right here, right now, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit in that way. Lord, move in the way that only you can move. And Lord, we pray that, we ask that, we invite your Holy Spirit in that through, in the name of your precious, holy, gracious, loving Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.